Good morning to each of you. I invite you to take God's Word and turn with me now to the book of James. And please follow along as I begin reading in chapter 1, verse 17, as far as verse 25. The verses we are primarily interested in today are verses 22 through 25, but as I mentioned, I'm going to begin reading back in verse 17 in order to set the context, remind us of Paul's thought flow, what brings us to what he is going to say in verses 20 through through 25. And so if you have found the book of James, again, we're in chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, take a look around under the chairs. They're scattered throughout the auditorium. You're more than welcome to grab one of those and find this portion of God's Word. And please listen to the Word of the Lord as we begin reading now in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So that is our text this morning. Where I want to begin, however, is with this little device, and if I hit this, I should get what I'm looking for. No. Can you help me out at the back, Arthur? There we are. Um, The book of James, as you are all aware by now, is fascinating on many levels. The book of James is also controversial for a number of reasons. We're almost there. We're we're well into chapter 1, we're almost into chapter 2, when we arrive at the second half of chapter 2, we arrive at the most controversial portion of the book. It is the portion of the epistle that caused Martin Luther to dismiss it as a straw, weak epistle. We're almost there. I want to make sure as we approach those verses, that portion that is coming, and I want to make sure as we get ever deeper into the epistle of James, that we have some fundamentals in view. In particular, I I want to make sure we remember some truths that we considered very carefully 
when we study the book of Romans together. These are truths that the entire Bible testifies to, uh, but we looked at them specifically. Uh, we gave a lot of attention to these as we made our way through that particular portion of God's Word. And I want to make sure these are clear. As I, as I said, we get deeper into the book of James in order to avoid any potential confusion. And so here they are, five truths. Let me get out of the way so everyone has a clear view of this screen. Here is truth number one I want us to get. God only accepts a righteousness that endures the pure eyes of his glory. That's a phrase I lifted out of the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1. It is also explained, I believe, there in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is the starting point. This is the foundation that we acknowledge, we understand perfection, imperfection, holiness, unholiness, righteousness, unrighteousness, that this explains the basic, most fundamental human reality. We are alienated from God, and we are alienated, completely separated, completely cut off, no relationship at all. We are cut off by virtue of our sin, and it's worse than that. We are, by nature, Paul tells us, children of wrath. We're all under judgment. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And God will only accept. You must understand this. Nothing else makes sense. You must grasp this. God will only accept a righteousness that endures the pure eyes of his glory, meaning what? He will only accept perfection. 80% won't do it. 99.9% .9 won't do it. He will only accept that which is perfect in his sight. That's the first truth. Let's see if this is working now. There we go. Second point we must grasp, this righteousness. This righteousness which God requires is not found in us. Do you get that? It's not found in us. None is righteous, declares Paul in Romans 3.10. None is righteous. No, not one. The fountain is polluted. Our hearts are twisted. Therefore, even those things we do which have an appearance of righteousness, even those things we do which have an appearance of goodness are unacceptable and are counted as unrighteousness in the sight of God because they flow from a polluted fountain and therefore they themselves are polluted. None, none, none is righteous. No, not one. This righteousness, therefore, it is not found in us. God requires it. Nothing, can, nothing will be able to stand before him. The, the, the gaze of his purity, the gaze of his resplendent glory, he requires absolute perfection, but this righteousness is not found in us. Pretty depressing. Are you depressed? I'm depressed. I'm depressing myself, but here we go. Number three, 
this righteousness, praise God, is found in Christ alone. It is found somewhere. It is concentrated in someone. And so Paul expresses it beautifully in Romans 3.21. The righteousness of God has been manifested. It is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It includes his active righteousness, the perfect life he lived, and it includes what the old theologians call his passive righteousness or obedience, his death upon Calvary's cross where he paid the penalty for our sin. And so God requires perfect righteousness. That's the starting point. This righteousness is not found in us. This righteousness is found in Christ alone. And here is the fourth truth which Paul really emphasizes and makes clear. This righteousness, therefore, Christ himself, is made ours by grace alone, through faith alone. That is why Paul declares at the outset of his epistle to the Romans, the righteous, the righteous man, the righteous woman shall live by faith. It is a faith when I believed in the Lord Jesus, it was a faith that made me one with him. Therefore, his righteousness became what? My righteousness. And therefore, that which God requires of me, that which I could never do, that which I could never perform, that which I could never produce, I now stand accepted in the sight of God because by grace, through faith, God has reckoned the righteousness of Christ to me so that I might be clothed in that righteousness and I am now acceptable in God's sight. As a matter of fact, I am now counted as an adopted son of God. Do you get that, you young ones? Do you get that? It begs the obvious question. What's the obvious question? Do you believe? Have you received the Lord Jesus? The Lord Jesus is the one who is offered to you in the gospel. And the invitation, the command, is to receive the Lord Jesus. It is to believe in the Lord Jesus. It is to be knit together with him. He takes hold of us by the Holy Spirit. We take hold of him through faith. These are the marriage bonds that knit us together, whereby we become the righteousness of God. Because Christ has become to us righteousness. It's wonderful, isn't it? Praise God. But there's one more point. Are you ready? Here it is. God changes those who receive this righteousness. A lot of people want to stop at number four. Just revel in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Great. It's wonderful. Now it means I can live however I please. No, that reveals you do not get it. That reveals you do not really understand the grace of God and the mercy of God. Paul makes it clear that, yes, God condemned sin in the flesh. That is, he condemned it in Christ's flesh, Christ's body, as he hung upon Calvary's cross in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so this wonderful relationship whereby we become one with Christ, yes, it changes our position, our status in the sight of God, and that is the only reason 
why God accepts us, but he accepts us to change us. I come just as I am that God might change me into what I am not. It has a transforming effect whereby, yes, Christ comes, becomes to us our righteousness, our justification, but also our sanctification. Now, here's what I want us to understand, and I beg you to understand. James, in his epistle, mentions nothing of justification. It's not his point. James, in his, his epistle, is concerned with what? This. That is why James has been so sorely misunderstood. Some have read this epistle and said, where's the gospel in it? And they've arrived at distorted, twisted, skewed conclusions because they have neglected to set James in the overall context. And understand this, that James is writing to those who claim to have believed in Christ. It's fine. It's water under the bridge. His aim is to show what it means to live in the sight of Christ's infinite merit. His goal is to explain this, that God changes those who receive this gift of righteousness in the Lord Jesus. One more slide, and I'm going to leave it up there. There it is, all five points together. Make sure we're getting this. Start at the bottom. It's really small now. Those of you in the back might struggle to see this. I know I would, but here it is. God only accepts a righteousness that endures the pure eyes of his glory. We must be perfect to be accepted by him. There you go. It's pillar number one. Building block number one. Block number two on top of it. This righteousness is not found in us. Block number three on top of that. This righteousness is found in Christ alone. We build on top of that. This righteousness is made ours by grace alone, through faith alone. That's amazing, but it builds. God changes those who receive this righteousness. James is concerned with the fifth building block at the top. That's his goal. That's his point. When we receive, I'm going to leave it up there for the remainder of this sermon, and we'll come back to it perhaps at the conclusion. James is concerned to demonstrate that, yes, we believe in the Lord Jesus. And by virtue of believing in Christ, we enter into this union with him. And because we are one with him, because we receive him, we get all of the benefits that come with him. And so I'm a Christian. I get his name. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. I get adoption. Because I'm one with him, I'm now a co-heir with him. I get justification. His righteousness is now reckoned to be mine because I'm one with him as far as God is concerned. And I also get the blessing of sanctification, whereby I now live in the reality of being one with Christ, one with him in his death, one with him in his burial, one with him in his resurrection, and the life I live, I now live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and God is performing this work of sanctification in me. And as I live by faith in Christ, that faith that is real faith, vital faith, will show itself in works. These works of obedience, 
this transformed life, these things are not the cause. They're not the reason why we are accepted by God. They are the fruit of our conversion. They are the fruit of being made one with Christ. It is not these things. These are not the things why God accepts us. These are the things God now produces in us because he has accepted us in his son. That is James' chief concern. And we must understand him in light of that. And so come back with me now. And I pray you'll be able to keep that paradigm, the relationship between these truths in view as we now consider what James says in the portion we have read. We can start all the way back in verse 17 and we can be brief because we've already expounded this. This is ground we have covered. In verse 17, James simply makes the point that God is the author of all good. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In verse 18, what does he do? Here's an example. God is good. He is originally good. He is unchangeably good. He is beneficially good. Here's a great example of a good gift, a perfect gift, that has come down from the Father of lights. Verse 18, of his own will. Here we enter into the realm of sovereign grace, of God's own will. Wasn't your will, wasn't my will, of God's own will. He brought us forth. He birthed us, a new creation, by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He makes the point there. In directing us to this wonderful gift, he makes the point that it was brought about, he's speaking here in terms of instrumentality, the means, this new birth was brought about how? By the word of truth. And so God birthed us, his people, his children, his new creation, the church, and he did it through only one means, and he continues to do it through only one means, the word of truth. How does that relate to what follows in verse 19? He continues to build on that idea of the word of truth. And he now demonstrates, beginning in verse 19, more or less through to the end of the chapter, that just as the word of truth is the means of our birth, the word of truth is the means of our growth. Just as the word of truth is the means of our, our, our regeneration, so too the word of truth is the means of our salvation. It's why he uses that phrase in verse 21, you put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It seems a little confusing. Well, isn't he writing to those who by God's will have been brought forth by the word of truth? So isn't he writing to those who are already regenerate? Isn't he writing to those who are already converted, those who are already saved? So why now in verse 21 does he exhort them to continue to receive the implanted word, the word of truth, which is able to save their souls? I thought they were already saved. He's no longer talking about salvation from the penalty of sin. He's speaking of salvation from the power of sin. He's speaking of sanctification, that just as that word of truth was the means by which God birthed us, gave us spiritual life, 
so too it is the means by which he grows us and causes us to increase in spiritual life. And so with that in view, he gives a series of commands. Those of you who were here last Sunday, do you remember? Six commands. That if this is true, if this is true, that God only works through the word of truth to birth me and to grow me, what should my response be? It's sixfold, six commands. Let me simply mention them for you. Verse 19, number one, you need to be quick to hear. It's obvious. Number two, still in verse 19, you need to be slow to speak when hearing the word of truth. The word of truth calls for serious deliberation. Number three, you need to be slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Anger is an impediment to spiritual growth. You are not going to grow spiritually if you're given to such passions such as anger. Number four, you need to put away in verse 21 all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Why? Because these things stifle a hunger and a longing for the pure milk of the word. Number five, what do we need to do? We already alluded to it right at the end of verse 21. We need to receive with meekness a submissive heart the implanted word. And number six, what is the sixth commandment? Verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Now he adds a phrase. I think I stated publicly last week that I'd rather this phrase not be here. It's true. Um, as a sinner, as uh, someone susceptible to self-deception, the phrase is very troubling. Uh, but there it is. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Self-deception. Self-deception is simply this. It, it occurs... It occurs when there is a divide, a divide between what we are and what we think we are. That's it. Self-deception. When there is a divide between what we really are and what we think we are. When Allison and I lived in Portugal all those years ago, it seems like another lifetime, just years ago. Uh, I had a friend named Richard, an Englishman, and uh, one day I asked him, hey, do you, I was looking for some physical exercise. Do you know how to play tennis? I had a tennis racket. Do you know how to play tennis? And he said, yeah, I play tennis, and, and I'm quite good. That was his response. I play tennis, and I'm quite good. I'm not much of a tennis player. I can lob the ball over the net most of the time. Richard was horrendous, absolutely terrible. Not only, not, it wasn't simply that he couldn't return what I lobbed over the net at him. He could barely manage to hit the ball out of his own hand. For the half hour that we were playing, the only thing running through my mind is this. You're quite good? What does quite good mean in England these days? You're terrible. His self-perception was completely out of whack. There was a huge disconnect between how he thought he could play tennis and how he could actually play tennis in reality. Harmless enough, it gets a little more serious when that lack of self-perception spills over into other areas of life. The man or woman who thinks they're a good driver 
but really, they're not a good driver. It gets even more serious. As a matter of fact, let me state it, it gets deadly serious when this lack, woeful lack of self-perception spills over into the realm of the spiritual. Self-deception. When there is this divide, separation, incalculable distance between what I think I am spiritually and what I really am spiritually. James, I know this is troubling, isn't it? It gets worse. James jumps all over this, then beginning in verse 22. And it is his focus through, really to the end of the chapter. We're only going as far as verse 25. Hear it again. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, that's the word of truth, the Bible, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so he is unpacking this danger, this danger that we are labeling self-deception. He unpacks it then in verses 23, 24, and 25. And he does so in very simple fashion. What he does is he contrasts two individuals. We'll call them men. He contrasts two men. Let me introduce them to you right at the outset. The first man we're going to call the forgetful hearer in verses 23 and 24. And in him we're going to see the cause of self-deception. The forgetful hearer. That's the first individual. And we're going to see the cause of self-deception. The second individual, the second man in verse 25, we're going to call the effectual doer. And in him we're going to discover the cure for self-deception. That's it. That's all James is doing. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer of the word, deceiving yourselves. What do you mean, James? Help me understand that. Well, let me help you understand it, first of all, by unpacking what I mean by forgetful hearer, and in so doing, demonstrate the cause of self-deception. And he gives us a wonderful, it's a powerful illustration, isn't it, in the 23rd verse? If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, okay, a comparison. Here's what he's like. Very earthy comparison. He's like a man who looks intently. He's got a mirror in front of him, and he's looking intently at it. His natural face, his complexion, what he looks like, like he's studying it in the mirror. Okay, that's fine. But verse 24, what does he then do? He looks at himself. He then turns, he goes away, and immediately he forgets what he was like. So I don't know. It's Wednesday night. It's, uh, it's care group night, study night. And you're hosting a care group at your home at 6 o'clock, and you put out some chips and salsa. And um, your tummy's a little peckish, so you 
grab the biggest chip you can find, and no one's watching, right? And you should really break it in half, but you dip it in the salsa and you just shove it in there. And you don't realize the salsa is there on the cleft of your chin. And you walk out into the, the living room, there's a mirror there, you, you catch a look of yourself in the mirror and you notice, you're looking at the mirror, you see yourself in the mirror. And what do you notice? What is that on my chin? It's salsa. Your phone all of a sudden rings, buzzes, whatever they do this day. You go over to your phone, it's the Phillips, they're lost. You can decide which of the Phillips, you have three choices. The Phillips are lost, they need directions. You spend 10 minutes giving them directions to your house. By the time you hang up, what have you forgotten about? The salsa on your chin, the doorbell rings, it's the planers. Norm is too sweet to say anything. But April, what is that on your chin? Okay, you looked in the mirror, you saw you had a problem, you diagnosed a problem that had to be dealt with, but something happened, you forgot because you were distracted, what good did it do you to see yourself in the mirror? Absolutely none. You getting the idea? It's actually worse than that. James' point is actually worse than that. Because in the illustration I just gave you, that man, that woman on the Wednesday night, what do they suffer from? It's a notional forgetfulness. They just happen to have forgotten something. Notionally. They forgot what they saw. Notionally. In the mind. That's not what James is talking about. James is not talking about a notional forgetfulness. He is talking about an affective forgetfulness. We don't forget notionally what we saw. It just doesn't move us. We're aware of it. We've seen it. We remember it cognitively. That's not James' point. Oh, I completely forgot that cognitively. No, his point, this forgetfulness is not notional. It is affective, whereby what we saw and we acknowledge staring us straight in the face, there it is. It doesn't really move us. Or it might a little bit. Oh, yeah, I'm going to deal with that. But by Tuesday, we've forgotten about it. Friday is completely off our, off our radar. That is the danger. You want a biblical example of this? It's Saul. Oh, Saul. Oh, Saul. Oh, Saul. There he is, the king of Israel. And he is pursuing David in the wilderness. And uh, David is hiding. Do you remember the story? Many of us have known this since we were very young. He's hiding in the inner cave. Uh, Saul goes in. Um, for a nap. And while he's sleeping, David sneaks up on him and cuts off a portion of his clothing, his robe, and then just sneaks back into the cave. Saul awakens. He emerges. He exits the cave. David goes after him. Oh, king, look here. What do I have? I could have killed you. At that moment, what is Saul doing? He's looking in the mirror, folks. He is looking in the mirror. And he sees himself. And what does he cry out? You are more righteous than I. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Transformation? He turns from the mirror, walks away, and he forgets what he saw. He did not forget the experience notionally. Oh, I don't remember what happened with David in the wilderness. He has forgotten it affectively. It does not change him. It does not affect him. It does not influence him. And what is he doing but a short time later? What is he doing? He's chasing David again. 
And there he is in the wilderness. He falls asleep. David with a couple of his mighty men, they sneak into the midst of the camp. And there he is. He could pin Saul to the ground with a javelin right there and then on the spot. He takes Saul's javelin. He takes a, a, a jug or something, isn't it? He flees. The sun comes up. There he is on the rock. David calls to Saul, grabs his attention. At that moment, what is Saul doing? He is looking in the mirror. He is confronted with who he is, his sin. Do you know what he cries? I am a sinner. He is a forgetful hearer. He does not forget the experience. He does not forget what he saw in the mirror. He is not moved by it. And he turns away and on he goes. And a short time later, what is Saul doing? He is chasing David again in the wilderness. There you have it. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. You want me to unpack this a little more? Whether you want me to or not, I'm going I'm to unpack this a little more. And I want to bring to bear the biblical witness concerning the conscience and understand why, why, this, why this happens. Here's why this happens. For our conscience, when we see ourselves in the mirror and we see our sin, for, for something to happen, change to take place, the conscience must be operative. The conscience consists of three components. This is the biblical witness concerning our faculty known as conscience. In the conscience, first of all, there's a rule, a rule. And so we determine what the rule is, the perfect law of God, law of liberty. We read the scriptures, we determine God's will, what God requires of us. That is the rule. That's the first component of conscience. But in conscience, there's a second component. It's the witness. And what we then do is we take that rule and we compare our lives to it. Do I measure up? Am I like that? Do I obey that? Or do I disobey that? And the witness having, spo having spoken, there is then a third component of the conscience, and it is not the rule, not the witness we're building, but the judge. Our conscience either condemns us or justifies us. We're either guilty or we're innocent. That is how conscience works. Here's our problem, folks. The conscience is corrupt because of self-love. And each of the three components of the conscience have been corrupted by self-love. And so because of self-love, what do we do with the rule? We minimize it. We tweak it. We make it fit who we are. Well, oh, okay, you, I mean, think in terms of the text. Think of the, this is where James is going to go, and we'll see this next Sunday in verses 26 and 27. But think of the text and the ground we've already covered. Go all the way back up into verse 19 where he says, Be slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Okay, so here's my conscience. I now know the rule. There it is. Anger is a sin. And it is something I have to mortify. And it is a sin to such a degree, a passion to such a degree, that it is an unbelievable impediment when it comes to spiritual growth and maturity. There's the rule. Because of self-love, what do I do with that rule? Now, that, that's really talking about somebody who gets physically abusive. Not really, not really the kind of anger I experience. That's someone who comes to physical blows. I know who that guy is or that gal is. And so we tweak 
the rule, so it no longer applies to us. What do we do? What do we do when it comes to the witness? We now know the rule, but we've tweaked it. And now witness will speak comparing our lives. Well, yes, I know anger. It's something I experience once in a while. And I know it's a terrible thing. I know it's a sin. I know it's something I need to put away. But, you know, at least it's confined to the home. And uh, nobody really knows about it. And at least I'm a really likable, swell guy and busy guy when it comes to the things of the Lord and therefore compensating for it in so many ways. Witness is overcome by self-love. And then judge, well, judge has been skewered, right? Because this, no, this command no longer applies to me. This command is for so-and-so or somebody who's really bad or if I were like that. And so self-love will corrupt our conscience so that the rule is altered, the witness is altered, the judge is silenced so that when we see ourselves in the mirror, and there it is, because of self-love, what happens? Although we see things as they really are, and we're looking intently at it, self-love kicks in, the conscience is skewed, I turn away, and I become a forgetful here. It's not that I forgot notionally what I saw, I just don't think it really applies to me, because I have mitigated it through my self-love. All right? Let me let you in on a little secret. Each and every one of us have been down that road a thousand times and counting. We do it all the time. That is to be a forgetful hearer. And it is to be self-deceived. And there is the cause. It's self-love. What is the cure? If self-deception is rooted in self-love, then we must root out self-love by a greater love. And that is what James now gives us. In verse 25, he points in this comparison, he brings it to a head. The second man, the effectual doer, the cure for self-deception, the 25th verse. But the one who looks, looks is the idea. You think of when Peter ran to the tomb and he stooped to look into the tomb. It's the same verb here. So it's the idea of bending low and looking into the perfect law that's the word of God. It's perfect because it's complete. It's sufficient. You don't need anything else. Absolutely perfect. The law of liberty. It's a law of liberty because it has brought, brought us out of bondage into liberty. It is the instrument which, by which God brought us forth, caused us to be born again. And so here is this man who is looking intently into it. He's being a quick hearer. He's being a slow speaker. He's being slow to anger. And he's looking into this law of liberty. But what differentiates this man from the forgetful hearer? Not only does he look into it, but he perseveres. Perseveres. What do you mean he perseveres? Being, it qualifies perseveres, the verb being, no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts on what he sees. He will be blessed in his doing. He will be blessed in his doing. James has a very specific Old Te Testament text in view here. It is Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2. Hear these, please. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with 
their whole heart. Why is this individual who perseveres? Why is this individual who is an effectual doer blessed? This man, this woman is blessed because God, listen very carefully here, we're going to connect some dots. God is the blessed one. We saw that all, don't lose sight of the context. All the way back in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift descends from above, from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is good. Psalm 119 verse 68, the psalmist declares, you are good and do good. God alone is good. And because God alone is good, he is his own blessedness. And our blessedness is what? It is to know God. The psalmist declares, blessed is those whose God is the Lord. And to know this God, to be in a relationship with this God, is the source of blessedness. To really enjoy this blessedness, therefore, is what? It is to enjoy God. Now get this, please. It is impossible to enjoy God apart from conformity to God. It just does not happen. Our enjoyment of God is directly proportionate to our adherence, our conformity to the will of God. And that is why the psalmist in Psalm 119, James Harps, he makes the same point here in verse 25, he will be blessed in his doing. Because you see, through his persevering, through his obedience, by being an effectual doer, he has brought an ever greater measure into conformity with the will of him who is, by definition, blessedness. Therefore, his joy and his contentment and his happiness and his blessedness can only grow, it can only abound. And there I believe we have the cure for self-deception set before us. It is blessedness itself. It is happiness itself. It is love for God. And it is understanding who this God is. Being overwhelmed by who this God is. Therefore, it is taking seriously what this God said. And having received this God as our greatest good, it is to receive his revealed will. It is to say, I delight in this God, and therefore I delight in his will, I delight in his word, I delight in his law. And it is to seek it with the whole heart. That is the reward that is held out before us. It is to grow in communion and fellowship with God himself as we are conformed to his will, whereby we increase in the enjoyment of him. I told you we were going to return there. There it is, still behind me. Put it all, put it all in its context, please. The person who is not listening very carefully might think to himself, herself, well, that sounds a little bit too legalistic. You're putting a little too much onus or emphasis on me. My friend, understand where we are in the paradigm. Understand where we are. And stop making excuses in order to justify your sin. 
Don't hide behind the doctrine of justification. Well, God just loves me a miserable sinner. I'm never going to be any better, so what does it matter? Don't do that. Understand the gospel in its fullness. That yes, he only accepts a righteousness that endures the pure eyes of his glory. There we are, the melting pot. We're all in the same predicament. I realize this righteousness is not found in me. No inkling of it. Nothing. I bring nothing. Oh, this righteousness is found in Christ alone. And this righteousness by which I am made acceptable in the sight of God. This righteousness by which God receives me, looks favorably upon me, forgives me, is found in Christ alone, and it is made mine by grace alone, through faith alone. That's not the end of it. That's not the end of the gospel. It goes on. God changes those who receive this righteousness. That's what James is talking about. That's why James can put it so eloquently again, beginning in verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, But a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Our Father, as we pause now in your presence, we do ask for your blessing from on high. And we ask you to show forth yourself, uh, your holiness, Christ's worthiness, our sinfulness, that truly these wonderful truths might take grip and be implanted deep within. Oh, give us attentive minds to what we have heard and give us receptive hearts to all that we have pondered. And we ask it for the furtherance of your will, the furtherance of your kingdom among us. In Christ's most precious name we pray. Amen.